in a few other spots in some of uh, the other letters that St. Paul wrote, when he writes about faith and love in the same sentence, he also mentions hope. Uh, probably the most famous of this little triad is from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He writes, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. Of course, he goes on there to say that the greatest of these is love, but he writes as if those three, faith, hope, and love, are connected or closely related. And I bring this up because uh, a couple of people who wrote a book about the letter that, of Paul that we are studying, studying the uh, letter to the Ephesians, this author duo noticed that in our text this morning, Paul initially only brings up two of the three. In verses uh, 15 and 16, we read, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped praying, etc. So he praises them for their faith and their love, but not their hope. So the co-authors of this commentary, one is a professor at Duke Divinity School and the other is uh, the pastor at First Presbyterian Durham, North Carolina. They write this. Given Paul's familiar triad of faith, hope, and love, one might ask, why does he not give thanks for their hope? They write that they think the reason is that there is a crisis of hope in the churches in the Lycus Valley, which is where Ephesus is located. They think that there was a crisis of hope. I admit that I hadn't noticed uh, this little singling out of and leaving out of hope when I read through, but when they mentioned it, it struck a chord with me. And honestly, it struck a chord with me because it feels a little bit like us here at Queen Anne Presbyterian Church. Um, I thank God all the time for your faith and your love. I have always been amazed at the depth of your belief in and your commitment to Jesus. The fact that you are here this morning is an amazing sign of your faith in and your commitment to Jesus. It's a bleary Sunday morning in Seattle. The Seahawks have their first away game on Eastern time. There is no social pressure in the city of Seattle to be in church on Sunday mornings. If anything, there's social pressure to not be in church on a Sunday morning. So the fact that you are here, uh, and, and this has been always the case, the fact that there's anybody here at all on a Sunday morning shows uh, a, a deep faith and commitment. And the love that you show with actions for each other and for our neighbors has always been so encouraging that I frequently brag about us 
in our congregation to my colleagues. And one of the folks who um, now has their own gig somewhere else but preached here several times, uh, she always calls us the little church that could. Um, And I love that about us because that's what I feel. There's always been so much action of love to each other and to our neighbors around us. And these are important things. William Barclay um, has some great words about how important it is for a congregation to have both faith and love. He writes, the two things which must characterize any true church are loyalty to Christ and love to, he was writing in the mid-century, last century, uh, and so he wrote love to men. I'm going to add women uh, into that thought because I knew that I know that that's what he was after. But he continues, however orthodox a church is, however pure its theology, however noble its worship and liturgy, it is not a true church in the real sense of the term unless it is characterized by love for men and women. There are churches which seldom make any public pronouncement which is not based on censorious criticism and the accent of whose voice is continuous criticism. They may be orthodox, but they are not Christian, Barclay writes. The true church is marked by a double love, love for Christ and love for men and women. This double love we have, love for Christ, love for our neighbors, each other, faith and love we have, but hope is a little harder to come by, especially these days. Many of us, not only in this congregation, but in our city and in our country, even in our world, find it difficult and in sometimes some ways impossible to hope. The intensity with which Paul writes to the Ephesians of his desire for them to know hope in their lives makes it clear that Paul believes hope is something that God wants all people to have. And thankfully, Paul reminds us of where we can find hope. This is something about which Paul is intensely passionate. Listen again to verses 17 and into the beginning of 19. I keep asking, and it's a continuous verb there, I keep asking that God, the God of our Father, Lord, excuse me, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him, that you may know God better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I love that phrase in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his his glorious inheritance in the saints, and God's incomparably great power for us who believe. Similar to last week's text, Paul's thoughts here just almost 
cascade out. He's, he's so passionate about these things. From that same commentary I mentioned before from the professor and the pastor, they write, it's as though the language is impoverished. It's unable to contain either the praise of God's glory or the riches of their inheritance. And so Paul piles phrase on top of phrase, all pointing to the same good future of God, the hope, the riches, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Paul wants us and all followers of God and Christ especially to know these things in, in a in fullness of knowledge to the depth of our souls. Again, that the, that the heart of uh, the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. John Stott writes that the essence of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and others is that you may know, that's the main phrase, we must not overlook this emphasis, Stott writes, for the knowledge for which Paul prays is more Hebrew than Greek in concept. It adds the knowledge of experience to the knowledge of understanding. More than this, it emphasizes the knowledge of God personally. The pathway to experiencing the hope that Paul invites us to is through a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus, the anointed one. The resurrection of Jesus is the most significant demonstration of God's power to overcome even the worst of this world. Jesus was dead. They pulled him off the cross. They put him in a tomb. Jesus was dead. The forces of evil and darkness had won. In our human experience, death is the most decisive force at work in this world. Once a person is dead, there is nothing in our control that can be done. Nothing. Not medicine, technology, science, philosophy, economics, art. There is nothing that we can control that will do anything about a dead body. That is the end of human hope, and Jesus was dead. But then God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. And Paul proclaims that that same power that raised Jesus from the dead to new life and exalted life is the same power that is at work in us. And in fact, the NIV, the New International Version translation of this, changed their translation to make this more clear. Our pew Bibles are the old version. So in the pew Bible, you still probably, it reads, that power is like the working of his mighty strength 
which he exerted in Christ Jesus. Verse 19, every time I get to this, I always have to explain because our pew Bibles have it the wrong way. I would say that's not in the original Greek. In the original Greek, it says very clearly that power is the same power at work. It's not like it. It is the same power. That is vital for us. And finally, I think the NIV heard me. I said it enough times. It got out there in the cosmos. And in their newer translation, they changed it. And they are very specifically worded that the same power, it is the same power at work within us. Paul even proclaims that in some astonishing way, we are already a part of that resurrected life of Jesus. In verse 22 and 3, after we hear about where, where Christ is at the right hand of God and ruling over all these things, and God placed all things under the feet of Christ and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, even now, his body. So if, if Jesus is resurrected, somehow being a part of body, we, his body, we are also. So being in a deep and intimate relationship with the risen Christ is the basis for our own hope. Looking at Christ is, the way Calvin wrote it, essentially looking at ourselves in a mirror. Calvin writes, We may see in Jesus the glorious treasures of divine grace and the immeasurable greatness of that power which has not yet been manifested or at least manifested fully in ourselves, but will be one day. Jesus' experience of full, resurrected, new life, eternal life, will be our own. Again, Barclay writes, when sin had done everything in its power to destroy Christ, when men and women had gone to the limit of human action to eliminate Christ, the resurrection of Jesus was proof that God's power is stronger than any human power. That same resurrection guarantees our eternal life as well. The way Matthew saw it, Jesus is the hope not only for uh, us as individuals, but for the whole world. And we have that scene where, where Jesus realizes that the Pharisees are out to kill him. He knows that his days are numbered, and he escapes for a while, and he, he tries to buy himself some more time by telling people after he's shown this power that is at work with him by healing all of their sick, he tries to extend his time by saying, don't, don't make too much of this. Don't tell too many people about me. I want to get around more uh, because they know he's coming. But Matthew said all this happened so that Isaiah's words would be fulfilled, that God says, here is my servant, the one I've chosen and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice and make justice happen until it fully has victory till he leads justice to victory 
in his name, in the name of Christ, the nations will put, the nations will put their hope. Even the Gentiles will put their hope. Even uh, when it doesn't look possible. Uh, one final comment, uh, writing from, uh, from William Barclay. If the Christian message is true, if God is as Jesus Christ taught us he is, then the world is not on its way to dissolution. It's on its way to consumption, to fulfillment, even when all seems lost. Even when all seems lost with God in Christ, we have reason to hope. And Paul reminds the Ephesians and us that God wants us to know that hope to such a depth that it carries us, even in the darkness. I know from talking with, with you all um, that there are times when we feel like Jeremiah felt in his laments, in his lamentations. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. And I think, again, one of the things that has been so true about our moment in this nation at this time is that folks like myself, a white male, are waking up to the, the hopelessness and the despair uh, that people of color have been experiencing even when we thought things had gotten a lot better. Um, even if we are simply white people who care about other human beings at all, there is a crisis of hope in our world for good reason. Much of what we know to be happening in this world is bleak, and it seems like it's getting worse. But with God, there is always hope. Even Jeremiah, while confirming and confronting directly all the hurt and darkness that he and, his, and the people of God were, were facing because this was written during the exile into Babylon, even then, Jeremiah is able to affirm, I remember all these things, he writes, and yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For God's compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for God. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in God, to the one who seeks God. It is good to wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord. And that salvation has been fully revealed, we feel, we believe, in the resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, even in the face of death, we know that God has the power to bring new life.
In Christ, we have hope, always. Thanks be to God.